You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information. I'm going to start by telling you that today's story comes with a bit of a warning. It partially involves the subject of terminating pregnancies. So if this is a topic that makes you uncomfortable, or it could be something that feels inappropriate for younger ears, you may wish to stop at this point. Now, I'm going to tell the story as it occurred, and I'm purposely avoiding the controversial political debate that surrounds the topic. I just don't want to go down that road. Now, I've been piecing the story together for more than a decade in dribs and drabs, and initially I had no more than a half dozen newspaper clippings that I had gathered up and placed in a manila folder that I labeled The Price of a Kiss. And while I'm still left with a few unanswered questions, I'm confident that I've assembled enough of the puzzle pieces to provide a fairly complete telling of the events as they unfolded. It's one of those stories that started out being focused on one particular woman, that's who I was researching initially, but I soon realized that it shifted to that of the story of a man. His name was Justin Lowell Mitchell, and he was born on April 3, 1877 in Napoleon, Ohio, which lies approximately 35 miles or 56 kilometers southwest of Akron. By the turn of the 20th century, he had relocated 45 miles or 72 kilometers southward to Lima to become a barber. His first, and by far not his last, mention in the press came on October 6, 1903 with a brief blurb in the Times Democrat. Quote, Marriage license, Justice Mitchell, 26, Barber, and Della McElvain, 23, both of Lima. That's it. And by the way, they did type uh, Justice, not Justin. But Justin Mitchell had grander dreams. Two years later, he gave up his tonsorial profession, and the couple relocated to the Windy City of Chicago. There, Della secured a job as a clerk in a retail store, where she worked to pay her husband's way through medical school. But this wasn't enough to make ends meet, so Della's father generously helped to support the couple. Then, in 1911, Della intercepted two postcards that had been mailed to her husband. They were from another woman. So on May 3, 1911, Della was in court suing her husband for divorce. Quote, I'm not going to stand for any morning glory calling my husband Honey Bunch. She added, that wasn't all, but he used to go to shows with a tall blonde that called him Honey Bunch. Well, the trial quickly evolved into a he-said-she-said said accusatorial circus, 
and it made headlines in quite a few newspapers. It really was quite scandalous for its time. Della accused her husband of numerous affairs with patients, told of a time that he had thrown her to the floor and broke her eyeglasses, and she accused him of both abusive and profane language when they argued. In turn, Justin called men to the witness stand who supposedly had affairs with Della. Both denied the other's charges. Two days later, Judge William Fenimore Cooper instructed the jury to deliver its verdict. The court found each guilty of infidelity, and the divorce request was, this is kind of interesting, the request was denied. So both requested new trials, but the press dropped the story like a hot potato. I honestly don't know what happened after that. That's one of those missing pieces I have. I do know that Dr. Mitchell would remarry in 1931, so his first marriage clearly did come to an end at some point. The details, however, are unknown. As I mentioned earlier, the story was originally centered around a woman, not Dr. Mitchell. Her name was Matilda Bankhart, and she was born in Germany on December 24, 1892, and arrived in New York and passed through Ellis Island on September 5th of 1911. Her 1920 application for naturalization describes her as being, quote, color white, complexion fair, height 5 feet 1 inches, that's 155 centimeters, weight 110 pounds, or 50 kilograms, color of hair dark brown, color of eyes dark brown, other distinctive marks, none. Now, two things stood out in this document. One is color white. There were no options there. That was printed on the page. And second, at the end, she had to sign a declaration that read as follows, quote, I am not an anarchist. I am not a polygamist nor a believer in the practice of polygamy. And it is my intention in good faith to become a citizen of the United States of America and to permanently reside therein. So help me God. By coming to the United States, Matilda was determined to improve her position in life. So for two years, she worked by day so she could earn enough to pay her way through high school, which she attended at night. A little side note here is that my late grandfather, that's Jack Silverman, he explained to me many years ago that going to high school in the early 1900s was considered to be an advanced education. High school wasn't compulsory, nor was it free in many locales. You had to pay for it. Well, upon graduation from high school, Matilda spent three years training to be a nurse at the German Evangelical Deaconess Hospital in Chicago. Known to the staff simply as German, she was considered to be an excellent nurse, and Matilda was almost certain to be granted her nursing diploma. Yet they refused to issue it, and they gave her a simple certificate instead. So why was she denied her diploma? Well, it's very simple. At 2 p.m. on Thursday, April 24, 1919, Matilda was working in the maternity ward of the hospital when Dr. Mitchell came in and he forcibly tried to kiss her. So Matilda decided to sue. And just what was the price of a kiss? Matilda Bankart was requesting that a jury award her $25,000, which is approximately $393,000 today. The trial opened in a Chicago courtroom on January 10th of 1922, and once again it placed Dr. Mitchell in the center of a scandalous, he said, she said, headline-grabbing story. Matilda testified that this wasn't the first time that Dr. Mitchell had attempted to kiss her. 
He had done it one other time back in 1916. Quote, he kissed me in the drug room. On the day of that second forced kiss, Matilda was dressed in her nursing uniform and attending to 18 newly born babies whose cribs were arranged in a semicircle around the hospital nursery. She testified, quote, I was standing near the crib of a newborn baby. I was bending over the crib. Dr. Mitchell came in. We were alone. He put his hand on my neck. She continued, He lifted me up and pushed me into the corner. Matilda was frightened and attempted to push the doctor away, but was unable to do so. Just then, the door to the nursery swung open, and the superintendent of nurses came in, questioning what had just happened. The doctor whispered to Matilda, quote, Don't mention the incident, before turning to the head nurse and stating, I think this case was caused by the instruments. Within 20 minutes of that attempted kiss, Matilda reported the attack to the night superintendent. She was Sister Anna Bouchel. In turn, Sister Bouchel informed Reverend Frederick Weber, who was the superintendent of the hospital. Matilda described what happened next. Quote, he questioned me privately, also Dr. Mitchell. The same day the board of directors was convened and I told my story. Dr. Mitchell told the board that he had merely tried to tickle me. Right after the meeting concluded, Matilda was informed that, quote, Dr. Mitchell must leave within 24 hours. Not long after that, Dr. Mitchell approached Matilda and told her, quote, Girl, you've made the mistake of your life. The next day, Matilda was subjected to a humiliating examination by a group of six doctors to determine if she was still a virgin or not. Matilda wasn't allowed to return to her nursing position and she soon learned that the hospital had decided to dismiss her without her nursing degree. Instead, Reverend Weber handed Matilda a letter of reference and told her she could complete her studies at the Epileptic School in St. Charles, Missouri. In place of a diploma, on June 6, 1919, that's six weeks after the incident, the hospital issued Matilda Bankhart a certificate that read, in part, quote, her conduct has been satisfactory. Dr. Mitchell, on the other hand, was allowed to stay on as a staff physician, and he received no penalty. When it was Dr. Mitchell's turn to take the stand, he declared the charges, quote, are the bunk, and I am the victim of a plot. In his closing argument, Dr. Mitchell's attorney, Hugh R. Porter, stated, quote, I believe that the first thing any woman placed in a position similar to that charge would do would be to scream. And Miss Bankhart testified that for 20 minutes she was unable to speak. Can you believe this? He added, While it is true that the examination of the physicians has proved this girl a virgin, it is also true that a girl may ever be so virtuous and still tell a story. She isn't anybody's baby. She is 27 years old. The jury deliberated the case for nine hours and on January 14th of 1922 notified the court that they had been unable to reach a unanimous decision. The vote was 10 to 2 in favor of Miss Benkhart. As a result, Matilda's attorney immediately requested a new trial and the judge agreed. Miss Benkhart expressed her displeasure with the press, quote, 
If they had only assessed them a penny, it would have been more than satisfied. She continued, The money does not mean anything to me. Whether they allow me one cent or $25,000, it is the principle and my good name I am fighting for. Well, a few months prior to the start of the second trial, Dr. Mitchell told reporters, quote, I'm ready for trial. I have full confidence in my attorney, Hugh R. Porter, and the average jury. The girl was never wronged either by me or by the hospital. If she wants to go ahead and make more trouble with her suit after juries are allowing such damages as $1 and $0.06 in similar cases, I'm ready. In fact, there had been a number of similar cases around the same time as this trial. Many were either dismissed or settled out of court, although a few women were allowed small amounts. That included $3, $25, and the largest I could find was $58.50. On February 21, 1923, Miss Bankart once again told her story to a packed courtroom, and it differed little from that of the first trial. When questioned by attorney Porter as to why she didn't scream, Matilda replied, quote, Because I was too terrified. I couldn't say anything or tell anybody for 20 minutes. I was so frightened. Well aware that the majority of jurors had voted in Ms. Bankart's favor, the overall tone of the defense was far more aggressive this time around. The Chicago Tribune wrote, quote, Dr. Mitchell took the stand in his own defense. His attitude was more of that of an angry, denying, and at times confused man than that of a well-poised man of medicine. He showed none of the cool impersonality displayed by Miss Bankhart. Dr. Mitchell testified, quote, I did not attempt to kiss Miss Bankhart. I did not hug her or make any improper advances toward her. With World War I still fresh in everyone's memory, the defense attempted to use Miss Bankhart's German heritage against her. Not only was her German accent pointed out to all in the jury, but Dr. Mitchell claimed that in 1917, quote, I overheard Miss Bankhart saying, I wish I were in Rockford, then some of the boys wouldn't get across. I would put poison in their soup. I reprimanded her, and it seems that she disliked me after that. Little side note here, he appears to be referring to Camp Grant near Rockford, Illinois, which was one of the largest military training facilities in the United States during World War I. Reverend Weber, the hospital superintendent, was also asked to take the witness stand. And while he admitted that Matilda had never been allowed to present her case at the meeting where they voted to dismiss her, Weber did his best to discredit her. Quote, In the first place, I learned from the sisters and the nurses that her reputation for truth and veracity was bad. But to discredit this testimony, Reverend Alfred Wenzel was brought in as a surprise witness, and he stated that he doubted Reverend Weber's ability to tell the truth. The jury reached their verdict on February 23, 1923, and then they went home for the evening. So the judge ordered their decision sealed until the very next day. Surprisingly, neither Miss Bankhart nor Dr. Mitchell were present when the verdict was read. The jury awarded Matilda Bankhart $20,000 for the two kisses that Dr. Mitchell had forced upon her. And there is the answer. The price of a kiss in 1923 was $10,000 per kiss, although the real charges against Dr. Mitchell in the hospital were far more serious than this headline-grabbing monetary award would suggest. 
Shortly after the decision was handed down, the hospital did do the right thing. They expelled Dr. Mitchell and they issued Ms. Bankhart the diploma that she had worked so hard to receive. Yet that wasn't the end of the case. The jury's decision was immediately appealed. On October 9, 1923, Judge Julius Kearns denied the motion for a new trial, but agreed to reduce the monetary award to $10,000. He stated, quote, $10,000 should repair the damaged feelings of any girl. He added, the jury's award was excessive when, after all the evidence was in, the case resolved itself, despite voluminous testimony into Miss Bankhart's vehement, yes, he did, and the doctor's equally vigorous, no, I didn't. The judge ordered Dr. Mitchell to pay $600, that's $9,265 today, $600 per month until the entire $10,000 was paid off. On October 20th, 1923, Dr. Mitchell was arrested for failing to pay even a single penny. He claimed he was insolvent and could not do so. So Matilda Bankhart's lawyer requested that Dr. Mitchell be placed in a debtor's cell until he could come up with the money. Instead, the judge opted to release him on a $5,000 bond. Yet the payments never came. On November 8th, Dr. Mitchell filed an insolvent debtor's petition, but the judge assigned to handle the case suggested that he would dismiss it. Instead, the judge gave Dr. Mitchell two options. Either pay Ms. Bankhart the full $10,000 that he owes her, or post an appeal bond of $12,500. Failure to do either would get him locked up in a debtor's cell for six months. Now, according to the press, with the help of neighbors, Mitchell was able to come up with the cash that he needed for bond. Dr. Mitchell's fight to avoid paying the $10,000 continued until July 25, 1924. That's when the two sides finally agreed to a settlement. Dr. Mitchell paid $2,000, that's about $30,800 today, and Ms. Bankhart agreed to drop all further legal action against him. Five years, three months, and one day after she filed a complaint against the doctor, the long battle between the two had come to a close. After this, Matilda Bankhart's name would fall out of the headlines, and it appeared that she lived a very quiet life after this. She passed away on September 24, 1943, at 50 years of age. Yet Dr. Mitchell's life seemed to spiral out of control after this. On January 12, 1925, that's just five months after the financial settlement, he was once again making headlines on the front page of the Chicago Tribune. This time he was arrested for, quote, performing a criminal operation from the effects of which Mrs. Catherine Martos, 27 years old, 6026 South Wood Street, is said to be gravely ill. This article never mentioned it specifically, but implies that Dr. Mitchell was caught performing an illegal abortion. The operation had been done at the Michigan Boulevard Sanitarium, which is now long gone, but was located at 3750 South Michigan Avenue in Chicago. Then on July 10, 1928, Dr. Mitchell was arrested for the murder of three infants, all the result of, quote, illegal operations. I'm going to avoid the gruesome details of this. It was in the paper for several days back then. 
but the charges were dropped because the prosecution was unable to provide any form of physical evidence to prove their case. Basically, cremations were involved. Now, this was all based on accusations made by a former hospital assistant superintendent whose credibility was questioned because she had been arrested right around the same time for bouncing a check. Then on December 10, 1931, Dr. Mitchell was once again arrested for murder by, quote, an illegal operation. In this case, 30-year-old Mrs. Ethel Vaughn had died from surgical complications. On May 27, 1933, Dr. Mitchell was once again arrested after 20-year-old Mrs. Florence Jordan died. She had told police just prior to her passing that Dr. Mitchell had performed an abortion on her on May 8th. On May 23, 1934, Dr. Mitchell was once again arrested on a charge of, quote, murder by abortion. This time, the victim was 24-year-old Mary Schwartz. On February 2, 1936, 20-year-old Alice Hagen, the mother of two children, died. Once again, it was due to abortion complications, a crime for which Dr. Mitchell stood accused. Yet somehow, Dr. Mitchell avoided jail time for any of these deaths. I just don't know how. The press was very quick to publish you know, stories that he was arrested, but they never followed up on them. Well, anyway, his luck finally ran out on February 12th of 1936. That's when he was convicted of manslaughter in the April 3rd, 1935 death of 32-year-old Mary Nowakowski, who also went by the name of Mary Novak. Dr. Mitchell was sentenced to 1 to 14 years in the Illinois State Penitentiary. An appeal was filed, but the Supreme Court of Illinois upheld the lower court's ruling. In turn, he appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, but they declined to hear his case. Dr. Justin Mitchell passed away on May 8th of 1941. He was 64 years old. It's unclear from publicly available records if he died in prison or not, but his card in the American Medical Association's deceased physician file offers up a very big hint. And I'm just going to read what it says. And it was kind of a uh, chicken scratch, but I did my best to interpret what it said. Quote, April 20th, 1939, received Illinois State Penitentiary, Juliet, Illinois. November 16th, 1938, convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to an indeterminate period, 1 to 14 years will appear before the Division of Pardons and Paroles at the November 1939 meeting. Given a continuance at November 1939 meeting, case will be heard again at June 1945 meeting. Now, since he died in 1941 and his next hearing was in 1945, it implies he was still imprisoned at the time of his passing. Now, the most blunt thing about this card was that it was stamped in big letters using a rubber stamp big, bold letters, dead, right across it. It's just incredible how far he had fallen in the end. Useless, useful, other than that for you to decide. This message responds to a message short, message short, message short. This message responds to a message short and an old familiar tune. If you want a program that'll sell your wares, sell your wares, sell your wares. If you want a program that'll sell your wares, then consider Kitzel Show. Oh, 
we've got a budget that's so nice and low, nice and low, nice and low. We've got a budget that's so nice and low that you must buy Kitzel Show. Mr. Kitzel, Mr. Kitzel, he's the answer to your clamor for a fresh new radio show. Well, if you need a sponsor for your show, all you need to do is make up a catchy jingle and hope that some company will sign on. Well, clearly that probably didn't happen in this case, because that's the only episode of the radio comedy Here Comes Mr. Kitzel that was ever made. That pilot was dated December 27, 1950, and starred Artie Auerbach. There's very little to say about the show, because it didn't catch on, but I thought it'd be interesting to tell you a bit about Artie Auerbach. You see, prior to his entrance into showbiz, he was an incredibly successful reporter and photographer for the New York Daily News and the Daily Mirror. His most famous assignment was that of press reporter during the Lindbergh baby kidnapping case. Now, the story goes that he was on another assignment in a Bronx drugstore one day, and he overheard a guy named Maurice Adoss singing the classic song, you know it, Yes Sir, That's My Baby, with a very strong Yiddish accent. Auerbach, who was supposedly the master of 30 different dialects, loved it so much that he began to develop a character named Mr. Kitzel based on what he had observed. Kitzel means to tickle or thrill or titillate in German. At least that's uh, what the search engine shows. (laughs) As Auerbach began to find more and more work as a comedian, he wasn't foolish enough to walk away from his day job as a reporter, so he requested leave after leave from the newspaper. He did that for years. He first performed as Mr. Kitzel publicly in 1934, and he did that role and many others on various radio shows, which included Abbott and Costello, before he was picked up as a recurring character on the famous Jack Benny show. And that's where he found his greatest fame, as Mr. Kitzel, a role that he played on Jack Benny for 12 years. While the pilot for Here Comes Mr. Kitzel was never picked up, that wasn't the end of his career. You see, as Jack Benny made the transition from radio to television, Auerbach was expected to join him. But sadly, just as rehearsals were about to begin, Auerbach suddenly died from a heart attack on October 3rd, 1957. He was 54 years of age. With all the big stories in the news recently, you may have missed one of the smaller stories, and that was the passing of singer-songwriter Jim Weatherly at the age of 77. Now, I know that Weatherly wasn't a household name, but one of the songs that he penned is considered to be a timeless classic. The song I'm referring to is Midnight Train to Georgia, which is a number one hit for Gladys Knight and the Pips way back in 1973. It's a song that I remember fondly from my youth and one that I never tire of hearing. Now, as a side note, my dad just loved Gladys Knight at her peak, and he would play her music on a track as we drove around in his big, giant boat of a car. I don't remember if it was an Olds 98 or an Olds 88, but it was definitely a big 1970s boat. <laughs> anyway, if you don't recall the song, or perhaps you've never heard it, here's a brief snippet of it. He said it would. What's interesting about the song is that it wasn't originally titled Midnight Train to Georgia. In fact, neither trains nor Georgia were mentioned anywhere in the original lyrics. So I have actually two questions for you. 
first, what was the original title of the song? And second, what famous actress was the inspiration for the song? And here's a hint. She's perhaps the most successful pinup poster model of all time. Well, hang around for a bit and I'll let you know the answer to these questions at the end of the podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. In other news, here are three stories that are all a little bit more lighthearted than the main story. Our first story takes place on June 22nd of 1917 in Riverhead, Long Island. That's when John Cozen told Mike Petrinsky that he had a sure way that he could double his money. I'm on, said Mike. If there's any one thing I'd like to do, it's doubling my money. That's when John asked Mike, well, how much money do you have? And Mike replied, $480 in the Sag Harbor Savings Bank. Adjusted for inflation, that's about $9,680 today. So Mike raced to the bank and he withdrew his entire savings. And that's when John explained how he could double his money. The secret, he said, was to split the money in two, which could easily be done if the money was boiled for an extended length of time. 
So the two men went to a fishing shack down on the shore and they created a fire so they could boil a kettle filled with water. Once the water was boiling, Mike observed as John placed a large wad of bills into the water. He then covered the pot. According to Mike, John told him, quote, Now you sit here and watch the fire and the money while I go up to the village. The money must boil till all the water boils out of the pot. Then the bills will be separated and you will have just twice as much money. So Mike tediously sat there for three hours staring at the kettle, at which point he was curious and he decided to take the lid off and take a peek inside. He found no money at all, just a big wad of plain paper. Realizing he had just been ripped off, Mike quickly returned to town and sought the help of Officer John Gay of East Hampton. Gay later told of how he laughed, quote, till I nearly busted. Once he gained composure, the two men went to Sag Harbor where they found John and were able to recover most of the money. John Cozen was immediately arrested and charged with grand larceny. He pleaded guilty to the charge, and on October 10, 1917, he was sentenced to 60 days in the county jail. Moving on. So I lived in Brooklyn, New York until I was eight years old, or just shy of eight. I was late seven when we moved. And I remember very little of this period of my life, but one of my fondest memories is of my mother taking us into Manhattan to see the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus at Madison Square Garden. And this is a time when clowns were still considered to be fun, not scary monsters. And Cracker Jacks came in large boxes. And best of all, they had a real toy surprise inside. Well, it turns out I wasn't the only one who enjoyed going to the circus. When the show first opened in Manhattan for the 1954 season on March 31st, it was a star-studded event. Dozens of celebrities joined in the festivities to help raise money for the United Cerebral Palsy Fund. And that included such big names such as Audrey Hepburn, Henry Fonda, Marlene Dietrich, Art Carney, Sid Caesar, Red Buttons, and Faye Emerson, who I did briefly mention in my 2013 podcast titled The Blaze Incident. Yet it was two young clowns who grabbed the headlines after the show. They were identified as Kay Mitchell of Salt Lake City and Bree Murphy of Duncan, Wyoming. The two young women, who were both recent college graduates, had moved to New York City seeking fame and fortune in the world of stage and television. But their story differed little from so many other struggling artists. The two rented a small apartment above a 52nd Street jazz cabaret, and they struggled to make ends meet. So when they heard that the circus was coming to town, they applied for clown jobs, but were quickly turned down. Yet they were determined to be part of the circus. So the two scraped together $2.40, which is about $23.50 today, and they purchased six yards of blue and orange fabric and fashioned their own clown suits. Then, on opening day, the two painted their faces with white clown makeup and the obligatory giant red grinning mouths, and they walked right up to the performer's entrance at Madison Square Garden, and surprisingly, no one stopped them. And for the next four hours, they strutted and tumbled under the big top lights as the crowd cheered them on. No one suspected that the two didn't belong there, and when the show was over, people even went up to them and asked them for their autographs. So while I got to see the circus, these two young ladies experienced something that few of us ever will. They got to be part of the circus. Lastly, we have a story from July of 1966. 
a number of residents in Indianapolis complained to the Indiana Bell Telephone Company that they had seen significant increases in their monthly phone bill. Many had increased by more than $10, which was approximately $81 today. When officials investigated, they determined that it was all due to a joke that had been circulating among the Indianapolis youth. The joke went like this. What did the giraffe say when the elephant stepped on his toe? Well, to get the answer to the joke, one had to make a long-distance call to Easton, Maryland. And when they did, they heard a loud wailing or whooping sound, which was the punchline to the joke. Of course, the real joke was on the parents when they received the bills for all of those long-distance calls. Well, it turns out that the number the kids had been dialing was a test signal for the Indianapolis phone system, and they had these in place for its repairment to test the high and low tones of normal conversations. And these numbers existed in nearly all major cities at the time, and when the children dialed the number that was provided by the jokester, the call was considered completed by the phone company and, of course, added to the dialer's bill. Sadly, in the end, the only ones left wailing were those who had to pay those high phone bills. So earlier in the podcast, I'd asked you two questions. First, what was the original title of the classic song Midnight Train to Georgia? And second, who was the inspiration for the song? Did you know the answers? Well, to explain is probably best to go back and talk about the origins of the song. The story goes that one evening back in 1970, Jim Weatherly, who was a struggling songwriter, called up one of his good friends. He was actor Lee Majors, who would soon gain famous television's $6 million man. I honestly don't remember much about the show, but I do have very vividly in my head the sound whenever he uses bionic strength. Anyway, when Weatherly called, it wasn't Majors who answered the phone. Instead, it was his new girlfriend and future wife, Farrah Fawcett. And she would go on not only to achieve fame in the original Charlie's Angels television series, but the poster of Farrah in her red one-piece bathing suit would go on to be the best-selling swimsuit poster of all time. Now, I didn't have a copy, but I'm quite certain just about every other teenage guy did. I think every teenage woman also had her hairstyle. Anyway, during the conversation, Farrah mentioned to Weatherly that she was packing her clothes and she's about to take a midnight, you ready for this? She's about to take a midnight plane to Houston to go visit her family. And for some reason, that phrase just stuck in his head And shortly after he got off the phone, he penned the song Midnight Plane to Houston in less than 45 minutes. So here's a brief snippet of that. And she's leaving on the midnight plane to Houston. Somehow that song was brought to the attention of singer Sissy Houston, who's the mother of Whitney Houston, And one would think that a song titled Midnight Plane to Houston would be the perfect fit for someone with the last name of Houston. But as Houston later told the Wall Street Journal, quote, My people are originally from Georgia and they don't take planes to Houston or anywhere else. They took trains. So she suggested changing the name of the song to Midnight Train to Georgia. And her version was released in 1973. Here's a snippet of that one. He's leaving, leaving, leaving on the midnight train to Georgia. Leaving on the midnight train to Georgia. 
Well, later that year, Gladys Knight and the Pips released their own version, which reached number one on Billboard's Hot 100 chart on October 27th of 1973. It spent two weeks at the top of the chart. Rolling Stone magazine recently updated their list of the 500 greatest songs of all time, and that song currently ranks as number 439. It is definitely one of my favorites, and if you haven't heard it or you haven't heard it in years, I suggest you get a copy. It's a great song. Well, that brings the 146th episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I'd like to thank everyone for all the kind words we received regarding the segment that my wife and I did on the movie The Best Years of Our Lives. More people contacted me about that podcast than any other episode I've ever recorded. So we're certainly going to be recording more of those in the future, so keep your eye out for them. Now, someone had asked me a few weeks back what the most popular episode I ever recorded was, so I did some checking. It was podcast number 37, which was titled The 34-Year Nightmare. It has had roughly 50,000 downloads at this point, and if you've never heard that one, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's about a 16-year-old boy from Salem, New York, who was arrested in 1925 for stealing some chocolates and lifesavers and was still in prison for the crime 34 years later. I'll put a link to it on my website. It's a story that my wife and I have discussed many times over the years, and it's definitely worth listening to. Of course, that got me thinking, what is the least popular episode I put out? And that's actually quite difficult to do because the older episodes accumulate more and more downloads over time. But judging based on the numbers, just guesstimating here, I believe the least popular episode was podcast number 107, the first transatlantic airplane race. And oddly, that story, which has something very surprising in it, is one of my favorites of all time. As for a grand total of all downloads, that's difficult to calculate because I've switched hosting platforms a few times over the years, and some of the stats, of course, were lost in the process. But from the data that I do have, which is incomplete, the podcast has had over 4.3 million downloads. Of course, if you enjoy listening to the stories that I include in this podcast, I highly encourage you to get a copy of my new book, The Flip Side of History. I'm not really sure it's available in stores, mainly because the whole world is shut down, but it's definitely available online. Make sure to sign up for my Twitter feed. It's at UselessInfoCast, and you'll be among the first to know when a new episode is released. Again, the handle is at UselessInfoCast. Also, be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can just do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast there, and it should pop up. Make sure you subscribe to the Useless Information Podcast. And you can do so through whichever platform you use. And that can be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeart, Pandora, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn. Actually, there's a whole lot of them. There's far too many to list each of them. Anyway, take care, everyone. Bye.